Welcome to the New Books Network. The Reagan-Thatcher neoliberal era started a retreat of the state. Privatisation and deregulation meant power was handed over to corporations and markets. And the question arises, now that neoliberalism seems to have run its course, will there be a return of the state? Well, according to Canadian academic Graham Garrard, the state is making a comeback. He argues that's a welcome development. So, uh, first of all, welcome to you. Thank you very much. And what is the evidence that the state is making a comeback? Well, the most recent evidence would be the COVID pandemic. Uh, We saw when that first arose um, that basically everyone turned to the state as really the only agency that could cope with it, that would be able to um, uh, create the conditions for dealing with it um, financially and organizationally. Um, So that's really when this book was written. It was written during this uh, pandemic. Uh, But there's other evidence as well. Uh, When the economy gets into trouble, we suddenly see everyone turning into a Keynesian, um, wanting the state to jump in and uh, save it. This happened in the uh, financial crisis, the global financial crisis in 2008, um, when all these banks and other businesses, uh, hedge funds and things, um, uh, went bankrupt. And uh, instinctively turned to the state to bail them out, which it did, uh, not just here in Britain, but in uh, the United States, all across Europe. We, we keep seeing this happen uh, whenever um, capitalism, for want of a better term, gets into trouble, it uh, turns to the state to bail it out. And uh, this recurring pattern, I think, is evidence of the uh, the essential uh, importance of the state. And also, um, we see these other issues uh, having to do with the environment. Uh, If this were left entirely to free markets, uh, I think uh, this problem would never be solved. It may not be solved even with the involvement of the states, but I think there's more chance that it will, particularly as it becomes more acute. Well, we'll get on to you know, the, 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 the benefits and disadvantages of, of, of bigger states later on. But just first of all, on what's actually happening and, and why. I mean, I guess if you think about the COVID pandemic and about even the 2008 crash, they were, they were one-off events in a sense. Do you, do you think there's a broader ideological shift away from neoliberalism in favour of the state or, or is it just circumstance? Well, that's hard to say. Um, I'm not predicting that um, there will be an end to what is now referred to as neoliberalism. But I do see signs that maybe we're at the beginning of the end of neoliberalism. Um, I think you need to distinguish between what's happening in the West and what's happening in the in the East, particularly in the Far East. Um, In the West, you see these crises occasionally emerge or quite frequently emerge, and the state uh, steps in and tries to save the situation. But then it reverts usually back to the um, status quo, which is neoliberal. Um, In the Far East, however, uh, particularly in China, I think you have seen a much clearer shift towards state involvement in the economy. Um, this has particularly been the case under Xi Jinping, uh, who's the president of China today, but it exists in other uh, economies, particularly in the Far East. And so it's um, you see two pictures here. One is in the West, where it's much more mixed, and one in the Far East, where I think it's much clearer that uh, there's been a shift away from neoliberalism.
well, I mean, to what extent was China ever neoliberal? Surely uh, the state's always had a big role in the economy there, and, and you know, arguably it's getting bigger now, but I mean, it's, it's never left the economy, is it? Uh, no, it's nothing like the West. It's uh, not neoliberal in that sense. But there was a shift under um, Xi Jinping to reverse some of the reforms uh, that were made under his predecessors. Um, uh, there was a shift in uh, the lead up to China's uh, membership in the um, WTO towards uh, economic reforms, so-called, that were distinctly neoliberal. Um, they, a lot of state-owned enterprises were sold off. A lot of the economy was deregulated and privatized. Um, foreign investment was welcomed into China to a degree that had never happened before. There was quite a distinct shift in that direction. And there's been a shift away from that since Xi Jinping took power quite uh, distinctly. So you're right, it was never neoliberal in the Western sense, but there was a movement in that direction and it's been a, there's been a movement away from it since then. And so that's why I say that. Talking about the West then, you're, you're, you're saying that neoliberalism may not have run its course, but, uh, you know, well, actually just on this um, series we've been discussing whether that's the case and whether some sort of ethno-nationalism is, is taking over and you know, represented by Trump and his imitators. Uh, do, why do you think neoliberalism is still uh, in play in the West? Well, because uh, it, although I think it's been a failure, a disastrous failure, um, it's still very dominant um, in elite circles, uh, in uh, um, among uh, academic economists, among policymakers, among politicians. It still has a kind of hegemonic power, and they're the ones who decide things, uh, even though it as a policy and as a practice and as an ideology has failed most people, I think. Nonetheless, um, the people who are the opinion formers and decision makers um, have not uh, suffered the uh, consequences of neoliberalism, certainly not to the same degree anyway. So I think there is a discrepancy between um, the status of neoliberalism among those elites and its status among uh, ordinary people, if you want to put it that way. Okay, and, and uh, you, you know, you've written a book with the title of The Return of the State. So w when you've thought about that, how have you gone about measuring that return? What aspects of public policy and public life are you referring to when you think of a return of the state? Well, I'm, uh, I'm not necessarily making the case that the state... Uh, um, is sort of decisively moving in in a direction away from neoliberalism. I'm sort of making the case that it should move in that direction, and that the COVID crisis and prior to that the global financial crisis um, uh, supports that argument. But I, I'm not predicting that it's necessarily um, moving away from it from neoliberalism. Uh, I would like it to. But uh, I think the picture is mixed. And um, so my book is intended to be my contribution to that debate and with a, uh, hopefully uh, push it in the direction away from neoliberalism and towards a stronger and more active role for the state, particularly in the economy. Let's, let's deal with that head on then. I, was, I also want to ask you about corporations and their, their, their role in public life and so on. But let's just deal with 
you know, the, the topic you've identified there was whether this neoliberal period has been as much of a failure as you think. I mean, well, just taking the UK, for example, under Blair, uh, there was, you know, significant economic growth and many of the targets which that Labour government set such as reducing child poverty were achieved. So is it is it such a clear record, as you suggest, of, of uh, failure? Well, it, as you say, it depends how you measure it. Um, I think one way to measure it is the growing inequality in society. Um, and that did grow. I, uh, I grant that uh, things... Uh, did improve uh, to a large extent in many ways uh, under Blair's government. Um, uh, but I think also that even under the Blair government, there was this growth in inequality, and it's, it's continued since then as well. Um, indeed, it's gotten worse. Um, and I think this is a measure of the problem that the uh, economy has improved, but the benefits of that improvement are not being uh, shared, not sufficiently, um, by most people. And this is a big, big problem. And it's one that I don't think Blair's government addressed very well. Uh, it did achieve other things, as you say, um, in other areas. Uh, and that's good. But I think that uh, it, it hasn't addressed a whole range of problems that are getting worse. So one of them is rising inequality. Um, uh, another is declining social mobility. Um, and another one, which I talk about in the book, is the um, uh, expanding power of private corporations, the shift uh, from the public to the private realms uh, of economic power. And this accompanied a project, the neoliberal project, that was begun by Blair's predecessors, but was continued by him. The selling off of uh, um, corporate, uh, public corporations, the outsourcing, um, the deregulation. Uh, this has resulted in a shift in power from public power, which is accountable in democracies to voters, to private power, which is completely or almost completely unaccountable. So that's another measure um, of how I think neoliberalism has failed. So, you know, it, it's failed under both, in Britain, it's failed under both conservative and labor governments, although it's failed more under conservative governments than it has under labor governments. Yes, but presumably uh, Blairite, uh, the supporters of Tony Blair would say, yes, they were, as, as Madison put it, intensely relaxed about uh, the rich becoming richer as long as they paid their taxes. But uh, at the same time, at the bottom, people did enjoy uh, significant improvements in their in their standard of living. So, uh, you know, all boats rose. That was the whole justification for doing it. Uh, wasn't isn't that right? Uh, well, it's it's there was increased spending in uh, um, education and in health. Uh, that's true, um, and that's a good thing, uh, entirely good thing. Um, but I, I don't think that that. Uh, Blair's governments uh, address these other issues, and I think without addressing them, then uh, I think that most people in uh, neoliberal economies, in societies, um, uh, still face fundamental problems of social mobility, of um, uh, uh, 
the the division of uh, the public world into um, different uh, sectors, um, the increasing uh, divisions socially. Um, that there really are a whole range of things where I think that uh, um, that. that they, that have been exacerbated and worsened by uh, a consistent uh, neoliberal policy um, to a greater or lesser extent. As I say, as you said, the um, uh, labor governments under Tony Blair did uh, um, uh, ameliorate uh, some of these things, but I don't think they addressed more fundamental problems in the in the structure of the economy uh, uh, under neoliberalism. I was struck in, in your book about uh, when you made uh, the case that uh, public sector companies are as efficient or can be as efficient as private sector ones, which goes against, I guess, the current orthodoxy. And um, yeah, maybe goes against people's experience of using some of these companies. Uh, what, why, why, do you, why do you make that claim so boldly? What, what's the what's your what's your thinking about why that is true and, and evidence that, that that is the case yeah well um w- one of the things i try to do in the book is to challenge uh the the dominant neoliberal image of both the state and market um the the that image has uh, portrays the market as competitive efficient and fair and I say it's uh, it's not all, any of those, um, at least not consistently. And co- on the other hand, it, it tries to portray the state as the opposite of those. And I think that's unfair as well, uh, or inaccurate. Uh, I think it's a much more mixed picture. Um, and so uh, it, I think those are aspects of ideology. They're not uh, consistent with, um, with reality. Uh, I mentioned in the book, um, another book by Marianne, Mazzucato, uh, who's a, um, a political economist in London, and she wrote a very good book called *The Entrepreneurial State*, in which she goes through um, all, a lot of the innovations in science, technology, um, in the last. 20, 30, 40 years, and shows how many of them uh, originated either in uh, um, uh, in the public sector or with public funds. Um, and she presents the case, as the title of her book implies, that the state is much more flexible, is much more um, innovative, um, uh, much more, uh, uh, much less risk uh, averse to risk than many private companies, which she points out uh, have many of them have closed their uh, own. Um, uh, research labs. Um, many of them have uh, become very risk averse. Uh, many of them have uh, turned to a much more fundamental bottom line approach, uh, short term approach to um, uh, investment. And often it is the public sector that is uh, funding the blue skies research, so called, and innovation. Um, I also point out how uh, one of the things, one of the what I call the myths of capitalism, is that it's competitive. Uh, the reality is that um, uh, the the thing that capitalists hate the most in the world is competition, because it drives prices down. This is not my uh, insight; it uh, goes back to Karl Marx. But uh, nonetheless, um, I think it remains true. In fact, truer now than ever. Um, 
so I, I also try and point out with lots of examples the inefficiency of uh, private uh, corporations today. Um, the way they are um, uh, re reward failure, the way they um, award bonuses, uh, even when their um, share prices go down, um, uh, how they uh, offer golden parachutes uh, and bonuses to um, executives who fail. Um, so there's a great deal of extravagance and waste in uh, private corporations. Um, and also, uh, the, the idea that it's a fair, that the market is a fair system of transaction between individuals is also quite, uh, pretty much a fiction. Um, so uh, I, I'm challenging the image of that neoliberals have of both the state and the market to, to, in order to show that uh, um, it's not as neoliberals imagine. And I also point out, this will be my last point here, um, uh, that in the public sector, when public sectors own and operate um, businesses, uh, th they are able to um, pursue things other than a financial bottom line. They can pr promote other social goods, um, whereas private corporations always favor the maximization of profits for themselves, shareholder value. Um, uh, uh, public industries don't have to do that. They can do that. They probably should do that, but they can also pursue other social goods. And that gives them a great advantage from the point of view of ordinary people. Uh, and also, um, th they, uh, <clears throat> they are accountable, at least in democracies. This only applies in democracies. Uh, these public corporations are accountable uh, in the sense that um, they're publicly owned. And so in democracies, um, when we elect representatives, um, these businesses are accountable to them. And uh, we can uh, um, uh, challenge them that way. Uh, that's not the case with private corporations. Um, they're not accountable except to their shareholders and their shareholders have their interests and I don't object to that, but uh, there is the public interest and uh, it's the responsibility of politicians, I believe, uh, to um, uh, promote the public interest and the public good. And so I think that this massive privatization that went on and is still going on to some degree, um, has uh, weakened the, the argument for democratic control of the economy um, because of this. Yeah, well, it's interesting to hear the case for public companies, but I guess, I guess you know, part of making that case would be answering the point that many of these companies seem very inefficient to the users. I mean, as, as a student... I remember trying to get a phone, and it would take over a year in the UK to get a phone line, you know, when, when BT uh, or, or its predecessor was a public company. Uh, and when it's privatised, obviously, it became much easier. So, I mean, th there are problems with public sector companies, aren't there? Well, sure. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Um, th they're not immune from the kinds of problems that plague uh, private companies, which are often uh, very uh, bureaucratic and slow and unresponsive as well. Um, that's true. Uh, uh, but, but I don't think they're. Um, I don't think that the image, uh, which is common uh, in neoliberal ideology, that. Um, 
private corporations are lean, mean, inefficient, uh, profit-making entities, and public corporations are these big, clumsy, sclerotic um, dinosaurs. Um, I just don't think that's true. They, they're probably much more alike than they are different. Um, but the uh, public corporations, the nationalized industries and things, do have certain advantages that private corporations don't. Um, w one of the advantages they private corporations do not have is that I don't think they're more efficient. Uh, th there may be some cases where they are more efficient, but there are lots of other cases where they're not. And their need to always pursue profit um, creates big problems that uh, public corporations don't have. So what examples would you, you point to to, to um, you know, back up that point? Well, the railways are a good example. I don't think the privatization, Britain's privatization of its railway system under, that began under John Major um, has been a riotous success. I think it's been a, a good example of what I'm talking about. Uh, it, it hasn't become more efficient, uh, more um, uh, um, accessible financially to ordinary uh, rail users. Um, and uh, it's had a really bad legacy of um, uh, customer service. Um, in fact, uh, some of these have take it, been taken back into public ownership. Um, and uh, like virtually every other country in the world, I think Britain may be the only country in the world that has a, a national rail system that's, uh, or at least until recently, was privatized. Uh, even the United States doesn't. Um, so I think that would be a good example. Um, I think Britain would be better off with a publicly owned uh, rail system. So tell us about the corporations uh, and their role in, in the economy today uh, as you see it. So uh, first of all, you're making a point, you know, which, which many have made, that there are now some very, very big companies on a global scale uh, that are obviously more powerful than, than many governments. Yeah. Uh, that's right. So um, part of my argument is uh, is not just that under the dominance of neoliberalism, both as an ideology and as a political project, um, uh, not only under the influence of that has the state been um, put on the defensive, has been uh, beleaguered and uh, delegitimized uh, to some extent, um, uh, has been rolled back, as, uh, as they say. But on the other hand, uh, private corporations, particularly the largest multinational corporations, have become bigger and bigger and bigger. They are huge leviathans of our time. Um, and so when you're judging uh, the state, you really can't do it in isolation from other forms of power. The state is the dominant form of organized political power, uh, power, public power in the world today. Um, but uh, private corporations are the dominant form of um, private power in the world today. And so um, I, neoliberal ideology and, and policy um, would have us believe that uh, states are um, uniquely threatening to uh, 
our well-being to our freedom, etc. Um, but you have also to consider what's happening with these corporations. So a couple of little uh, brief statistics, just to put it in context. Um, 69 of the top 100 uh, economic entities in the world today by revenues um, are corporations. 157 of the top 200 are um, corporations. Um, they're uh, big, the biggest of the big, the biggest beasts of the corporate jungle, the private jungle, uh, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, etc., are all, each of them, worth more uh, than the GDP of 168 nations, which is the majority of nations in the world. So um, part of my argument is that th there's really only one entity in the world today, one agency in the world today that can offset or counter the power of these ever-increasing, uh, uh, increasingly rich and powerful private corporations, and that's the state. And so there are really two things going on. Um, one is the state is being put on the defensive um, politically and ideologically by neoliberal ideology. Um, uh, and also uh, it's been um, undermined and somewhat marginalized by the ever-growing power of these huge multinational corporations and um, there are uh, there are they're small in number but they're ever increasingly big in their size and their wealth and their power so that's the other side of the argument uh, when judging these things they have to be judged together um, and uh, part of my case for the state, for strengthening the state, for making the state strong and active, is to offset this burgeoning power of uh, private corporations. So do you believe that uh, these companies should be nationalised? Uh, in many cases, yes, uh, I do. Um, I think that... Uh, uh, it depends. I mean, I wouldn't say wholesale nationalization of everything. I, I'm not. I made. I made it very clear in the book. I'm not a socialist in that sense, in the narrow technical sense of someone who believes in the um, in public ownership or social ownership of the entire m means of production. You know, basically the economy. Um, however, uh, I do think there's a very strong case and a, an increasingly strong case that. Um, a lot of these corporations should be private, uh, public, taken into public ownership. For example, banks, let's take that. Um, I make this case in the book that any entity in an economy that's, quote, too big to fail uh, is really in an unsustainable position as far as the public interest is concerned. Because, uh, and that's the classic case of banks. Uh, Britain's top five high street banks uh, have 90% of the uh, bank accounts of, of uh, ordinary British people. And which means that any one of them, if, it, if they fail, uh, will have to be bailed out. And I think that's just an uh, um, uh, irresponsible position to put the British public in. So, I believe that uh, they should be nationalized. They should either be broken up into smaller banks or nationalized. And I would prefer that they were nationalized. Um, you could say the same of uh, important public utilities. Well, let's just stop on the banks. Sure. Why would you prefer that they were publicly owned rather than uh, made smaller and made small enough uh, to fail? Because, you know, they're, they're, as, as 
I think you've acknowledged that there have been some problems with public companies uh, in terms of bureau- bureaucracy and so on and uh, incompetent management, political motivation, uh, meaning it's impossible to fire people uh, and yeah, all, all the problems that are associated with those companies. So, so uh, what is the advantage of, of uh, large public companies versus smaller private sector companies? Well, um, I, I think it's it's uh, it would be easier to for the for the government to own these than to break them up into smaller banks, um, which would then uh, probably just um, end up uh, um, turning back into big banks, um, and then you have to smash them again. Uh, this seems to be the way that these things go. That seems to be the pattern. Um, it happens in the United States, which has tended not to nationalize um, businesses or, or industries. It's tended to use antitrust laws and smash them, break them up. Uh, but then they reform into uh, into oligopolies. Uh, you saw that with um, with Bell uh, Corporation, the telephone corporation in the United States. Um, Ronald Reagan smashed it. Uh, he used the antitrust laws and smashed it. <laughs> it turned. It just went back to where it was. It's now bigger than it was before. Um, so you'd have to keep smashing. You have to keep intervening. That would be, that would be really disruptive and uh, and destabilizing to a, sec- a crucial sector of the economy. Um, I'd rather you took it, it took them into public ownership, like happened in, uh, in has happened in many countries. I mean, Britain did it recently when these uh, some of these banks failed. It just took them into public ownership. It happened in the United States. It happened in uh, in many countries in Europe. It happened in Israel. Uh, it have it happened in India. India nationalized virtually all of its banks. Um, so it's not unusual uh, what I'm saying, what I'm recommending, um, and it has the advantage that the government can then um, uh, run it itself in the public interest. Uh, all those billions of pounds of profit that each of these banks generates every year can be uh, can go into the public coffers, uh, can be used for um, uh, promoting public goods, uh, which they don't now. Um, now they go in the form of uh, um, dividends to shareholders. Um, so that has a, that's a big advantage. It's one of the arguments I make for... Um, state-owned enterprises in other sectors as well, is that um, the, the uh, public finances can benefit from this, and these can be used uh, for public goods, uh, which they're not now. But, I mean, obviously, if, if, if the state wants those profits, it's going to have to pay for them. I mean, buying out the banking sector would, uh, in the British economy, couldn't afford it, could it? Well, it depends. Um, uh, it, it could afford it if it wants to, if it's willing to uh, um, create money to buy them, which is what it did in the financial crisis. You know, uh, all neoliberals often make the argument that, oh, well, it's too expensive. We can't afford it. There's no money. It would break the bank. Uh, and yet, uh, suddenly in 2008, they found the money. Um, billions and billions, uh, hundreds of billions, uh, just like that, um, in the United States, in Britain, all over the place. It, they can do it if they want to do it. Uh, they can create money. There's no limit. In a sovereign fiat currency, there's no limit on how much uh, money the government can create. There are risks to doing that, I grant, but we've seen them do it recently. And so I'm just saying um, when they did uh, effectively nationalize these banks, like RBS, the Royal Bank of Scotland, um, th- they did it. Uh, and it didn't cause a big increase. In yeah, but that wasn't, that wasn't worth anything. I mean, that had gone bust. 
Right. So my argument would be uh, they 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 jumped in, they took it over, uh, they shouldn't have given it back. They should just have kept it in uh, public ownership. And then when it did become um, viable again, economically, financially, uh, it would make uh, profits and those profits would go back to uh, to the Treasury to be spent on, as I say, on public goods. Now, there's, there's one issue I just wondered if you could um, spell out for us, because you, 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 you said, you know, you don't believe in, in um, the economy being 100% owned by the state. Uh, but clearly, you, you think it should be tilted in favour of public ownership from where we are now. So, so where would you draw that line? And what criteria would you use uh, to establish what should be in public ownership and what shouldn't be? Yeah, that's a very good question. I'm not sure I can give a a very satisfying answer to that. Um, I did leave that somewhat vague in the book, uh, and deliberately so, because I... I don't want to be overly prescriptive. Uh, you might say, well, it's too late. You are, you have been. But um, I, I do believe that um, the answer to that would, to some degree, depend on particular economies and particular um, countries. One of my criticisms of neoliberalism is that it has this um, rigid, ideological, one-size-fits-all approach and has been forcing it on other countries all around the world when it was totally inappropriate. Inappropriate because of their economies, inappropriate because of their own um, uh, uh, traditions and history of uh, state involvement in the uh, economy. So I don't, I don't want to make that mistake myself and be overly prescriptive. I think it would depend. Um, but you're right. I, I think that um, we, we should move away from neoliberalism, which wants to move as much of the economy into the private realm as possible. Uh, and But we should shop, stop short of full-blown socialism in the technical sense, where pretty much the whole economy would be in the public sector. Um, I would like I would like to move as much as possible along that spectrum between those two things, so that um, the public interest is better promoted, is better protected, uh, that more of the economy is under democratic control um, than is the case now, and any movement in that direction I would welcome, uh, but I don't see why it would be necessary or even desirable to go all the way. Um, there's really no country in the world that has gone all the way in that direction. I don't know, maybe... Well, there is. I mean, the the Soviet Union did. Well, the Soviet Union did, yeah. Um, But today, uh, even China, is not. uh, that's not the case. Uh, Maybe North Korea, I don't know. I've never been to North Korea, I don't know enough. But really, every economy in the world is a mixed economy now. Uh, The question is, what's the best mix? And I'm saying neoliberalism is not the best mix, not at least for the majority of people. It might be for the 1%. It certainly is for the 1%, but it isn't for everyone else. So, um, and I don't think that uh, um, socialism is a a mix, right? It's a pure system, but there really aren't any pure systems now. So I just want a better mix, a different mix, a mix that favours the public interest more than is the case now. Well, thank you very much. That's uh, Graham Garrard, whose book, The Return of the State, has been published by Yale University Press. So thank you very much indeed for for joining us. It's my pleasure. It's been good fun.